uh, today, and we're going we're gonna to look at the verses that Paul reveals the very character, the very essence of heaven. And what he reveals about heaven is that heaven is a realm or a world of love. That the essence of heaven is described by this unconditional, selfless, sacrificial love that the Father has for us and has demonstrated it through the love that He has shown in the Son and now poured out in our hearts in the Holy Spirit. We're going to read together these verses. We're going to look at what it has to say about heaven and about love together this morning. Let's read out loud. I like it when you read with me. So let's read together. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Amen. So Paul uses three metaphors to reveal or describe the very essence of heaven. We're going to look at those three metaphors together, and then we're going to talk about specifically what heaven is like, and then what does that mean for us today. So the first of these metaphors that he uses is the word perfect. He says, when the perfect comes, he's refer- referring there to heaven. He's referring to your destiny, your, your end, in a sense. The word that he uses in the Greek is the word teleos, or in this specific incident, he says totelion. And in using this word, he's not just using the idea of perfection, but he's actually using the idea of the perfect element for you. In other words, he's saying this is the end to which God is leading you. This is the end to which all the, all the circumstances and situations in your life, everything that you've known and everything that you will know is all leading you to this end to this perfect ending of your life. And so, really and truly, what Paul is saying is that heaven is the place and is the realm, is the world in which you were meant to be. And one theologian described it this way, and it was very helpful to me. He said, if you could picture a beached whale, whenever you've seen them on TV or if you've ever been at a beach where a whale has beached itself, you will see that that massive whale, that, that the strength of the whale, the, the power of the whale, everything about the whale is neutralized by the beach. No matter how strong the whale is or how big the whale is, the beach is not the element of the whale. And so as the whale is beached, everything that is good about the whale is actually now a counter to its survival. And so the whale is left on the beach. If left to itself, the whale will simply die because he is out of his element. Now, some of you might have seen before that people will come along and lead the whale, you know, 
back to the beach. They'll throw shovels uh, or uh, buckets of water on the well to try to keep the well from uh, being almost cooked in the heat and stuff like that. But the, the whale is out of his element. He's not where he was intended to be. But as soon as a whale gets back into the ocean, everything that was negative on the beach becomes positive in the ocean. The size of the whale becomes a place of strength and power. The, the fins and the, the way the, the, the whale is able to propel itself, this giant whale in the ocean virtually dances because it was made for the ocean. So what Paul is saying is you and I are beached whales. That this is not our element. That this is the place where we die. That we only survive here for a time. And all the, all the characteristics that actually conform and respond, uh, the things that seem almost like detriments to you now, in heaven will be your ocean. That which made you powerless will make you powerful. That which keeps you from dancing will set you free to dance for eternity. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying one of the reasons that you have this deep longing inside is because you're on a beach and you're not supposed to be there. You're supposed to be in the ocean. And heaven is the ocean. So many of you, even if you get the job you want, even if you have the relationship you want, maybe you have the best marriage of any of us, there will still be this part of you that says, I wasn't made for this. There, even if you find some level of contentment, you will always sense a longing for the ocean. And the ocean is not here in this realm. It's the ocean of heaven. It's the place of God's love. There are things in us that do not correspond to this world, but when you get in that world, you will know what they were for. It's an interesting thing when you think about what Paul is saying. Is Paul is saying that everything that's going on in your life, from the good things to the bad, the sicknesses to the healings, from the prosperity to the poverty, whatever it is, all of those things are leading you to an end. And the end is the ocean of his love and the ocean of his presence and the ocean of his power. And there you will swim. And there you will be free. You and I, we have glimpses of the water now. We have times when we have refreshing. There are times of seasons of rain. There are seasons and times where we go, ah, this is what I was made for. But those are only glimpses of what's ahead for you. Paul has made it clear that the element you were made for has not yet appeared. But when you die, or when Jesus returns, the perfect will come for you. And instead of being a beached whale, you'll be a swimming, dancing whale. Now, the second one of the metaphors is that the Apostle Paul says, the face. And he, he likens heaven to a face. And that face is the face of Jesus. The face of the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, if you read in the Psalms and you read 
even in the Pentateuch and you read in the different places of the prophets, you will see that there was almost a lust among the Old Testament believers. There was a lust to see the face of God. There was a passion to see the face of God. David writes, let me see your face, O God. You know, Moses says, I don't want to go from this place unless I see your face, O God. And yet at the same time, there's an incredible fear of the face of God because in the face of God, unholy men and women die because they cannot stand uh, in His holiness with our unholiness. So you see these pictures all through the Scriptures, like Job. Job cries out to the Lord, says, Lord, I'm really mad right now. I'm really upset. I'm really hurt. I want to see your face. Come and answer me. And he comes, and Job goes, okay, I was not meaning that quite the way it sounded. Let me turn back a little bit, because, he, you know, he says, who are you to question God? You know, uh, Moses wants to see the Lord, and we know it's a good thing. The Scripture shows us it's a good thing that he wants the manifest presence of God, and he's unwilling, even with the promises of God, he is unwilling to lead the people unless first he sees the face of God. And God says, no, you can't see my face. If you, would, if you were to see my face, you would die. So he hides him in the cleft of the rocks, covers him, and then he lets him see the backside of his glory. And that, man, the moment that Moses sees that, he's changed forever, changed forever. And the Lord speaks and the Lord reveals, and it's, it's amazing. But Moses learned to fear the Lord even in that sense because of the beauty of his glory and, and the perfection of his holiness, his face. Isaiah, one of the greatest passages that I believe in all the scriptures, Isaiah 6, where Isaiah is brought to the very throne of God and he sees God and immediately instead of saying, you know, some kind of familiarity with God or some kind of slang with God, he falls on his face, he hides his face, he cries out and he says, woe is me. You see, that which we long for most, what we were made for, we cannot have. Even the greatest prophets, even the, the greatest leaders of the Old Testament, they longed for the face of God, but they could not meet him face to face. Even Moses, God had to appear in a cloud. He had to appear in a, in a, a way that Moses could tolerate his face, that Moses could be like face to face with him. But then when he would leave the tent, the people would be so afraid, they wanted Moses to cover his face. This is the beauty of what's being told us here. Uh, can you track with me on this? The beauty is this. Jesus went to the cross for what kept you from the face of God. Jesus paid on the cross for that which makes you unacceptable in the presence of God. Jesus, the Son of God, had the Father turn his face from him so that the Father would never have to turn his face from you. You can look at him face to face. You don't have to run. You don't have to put on a veil. You don't have to put on a mask. You don't have to do anything. And you go before him without any costume, without any mask. 
You go before him and his glory reflects in your face and his love reflects in your face and you do not have to turn away, not because of you, but because of Jesus. Jesus was willing that the Father would turn his face from him so the Father would never have to turn his face from us. So beautiful. I mean, it's such a beautiful way to think about the gospel. I think about how many people think they've made deals with God. You know what's going to happen to those deals when they see him face to face? Every single person who saw an angel fell down as if they were dead. Can you imagine the deal makers in the face of God? They'll disintegrate. But you, little you, who have nothing to give God, whose righteousness is nothing more than a filthy rag, little old you, who can barely get to church on time, Because of what Jesus did on the cross, you never have to be ashamed again. You never have to hide again. Now the third metaphor, whoops, I went too far. Third metaphor that he uses is the word agape, the word love. He says, heaven is a realm of love. It's this kind of love. It's sacrificial, it's selfless, and it's unconditional. There is no other place that this love comes from. That love does not come from earth. It cannot be produced on earth. It cannot be manufactured in earth, but on earth. But it is the essence of heaven. That, you know, a lot of times we get these pictures and people are talking about walking on streets of gold and Jesus talks about preparing a room. And so we sing songs about I've got a mansion in heaven and all of this kind of stuff. But what people don't really recognize is that all you will know when you're there is that you are loved. You will know love for the first time and the best time. All you know now is a taste of that love. It is a bucket of water on the whale. But what you will know there will be what you've always longed to know here. That love is the essence of heaven. And notice how Paul phrases, he says, now these three abide, faith, hope, and love. Now, why does he say it that way? Because faith and hope are only necessary for now. In heaven, in the face of love, in the face of your Savior, you will not need faith because it will all be sight. You will not need hope because it will be hope fulfilled. Everything you have hoped for, every hope you have based your life on will be satisfied, will be overabundantly satisfied. And all that will survive is love. So in a way, faith right now and hope right now are the scaffolding for the building of love that God is developing in your soul. But when the true comes, when the perfect comes, the scaffolding will no longer be necessary. 
Right now, faith and hope are renovating your broken heart. They are the scaffolding to bring the renovation about. And love is what's putting it back together. And it's so beautiful when you begin to realize that, that the focus of our life, the focus of the end of our life and the focus of the direction of our life and the fulfillment of our life is not just to get more faith, but it is to receive greater love and to have greater capacity. How do I do that? I have that because I begin to have faith in the love of God for me. I began to say, this is for me. And my hope is not based on me or my circumstances or what I can do or what I've done. My hope is based on the unfailing love of God. Remember what Paul reveals about the love of God? He bears all things in you. He believes all things about you. He trusts always in you. He hopes always in you. He endures everything that you've been through and everything you've put him through. And then the word says, his love never fails. And what we've begun to understand, if you've been with me over these six weeks together and we've been listening to the Spirit together, what you begin to understand is that you and I were made for this kind of love. That we know, if we're honest, that the only true love is love that never stops. We recognize that we have had other sentiments, we've had other feelings, and they went away. And it would be better and more honest to say that many of us have called love what was nothing more than our hunger. Our hunger to be satisfied, our hunger for attention, our hunger to be important, our hunger to be respected, our hunger to be safe. And so we have looked and said, you make me feel like you could satisfy that kind of hunger. And we give ourselves to those kinds of things and to those kinds of people. And then we wonder why love goes away. It goes away because that which we thought would satisfy our hunger does not. And then we recognize, well, I don't love you anymore. Or I am no longer loved by you anymore because I don't satisfy your hunger. And there is something deep within our souls. There's the way that God has wired us that we know that that is wrong. We know that's not enough. We know there's got to be something more. There's something in you that is not irrational there's something in you that's not unreasonable that says i need to be loved for who i am not for what i can do for you and not for what i can bring you but but to be loved for who i am and the problem is there's not a person in this room who can love you that way and there are good people in this room but not a one of them can love you apart from what you give them and what you bring for them and what you do for them unless they have first experienced the unconditional love of Christ. Because there is a love apart from us that can be ours, that is ours to meet and ours to experience and ours to know. But if we don't know that love, the best we produce is affection one for another. And why we are not satisfied is because we were made for the deeper things. There's a hunger in us. And if 
And, and if I can just illustrate it one way for you. When people do wrong, when they betray you, when they disappoint you, when they don't do what they told you they were going to do, or they do that which you didn't want them to do, the reaction within you, if you're honest, the, the feeling within you that if you're honest is a, a kind of an, a, a rage or an anger, a frustration with them. And, and, and not only do you want them to never do it again but, and to hurt for what they've done, but you want them to hurt in such a way that they will never do it again. Because there's a thing inside of us that says, this isn't the way I'm supposed to be treated. Guess what? That's not fallen nature. That's the longing for the ocean. That is that which is within you that has a memory trace of when we as a people were face to face with God. There is a memory trace in your soul of when Adam walked with God and Eve walked with God. And there is something within you that will not be satisfied or fulfilled by the mere offerings of humans. It will only be satisfied when you are face to face with the one who loves you. Now, what does Paul say here? Well, he gives us a vision of the way that heaven is, and the way that he explains it is you're, you're walking into this world of love, not peace. Now, now, the problem with many of us is a lot of us picture of heaven is not a place we'd like to spend a long time. Some of us have the picture of heaven that we live in clouds and we play harps. <laughs> Some of you have a crazy notion that when people die, they become angels and they get wings and you know, that's a wonderful life is a pic it's a moving picture, you know, with Jimmy Stewart in it. It is not revelation from God. It's cute, but it's wrong. Angels are a created group of people who have forever uh, been dwelling with God as angels. No one gra graduates to the angelic realm. Okay, I don't know where that came from, but it's utter nonsense. Now, why do I say that this matters? Because God never says that he loves his angels. You would be demoted to be an angel. He says he loves you. I don't want to go back to being an obedient servant. When I get to be a son, which would you rather be in the house of God? I'd rather be a son. You'd rather be a daughter. Okay, there's nothing wrong with being an angel, but I'd rather the higher, you know, <laughs> I'd rather the higher rank. Okay, so we began to understand that we have these messed up ideas about heaven and that, and so much of Eastern thought has come in where there's this idea of, of eternal life that is impersonal. That it is a move into peaceful nothingness. This is, not, this is not the will of God. This is not the word of God. You are not moving into peaceful nothingness. You are moving into and moving towards what you were made for, which is love. You are, 
moving into an ocean where you can finally swim. You are moving into a place where your power will be evident. You're moving into a place where your status will be secure and your safety will be forever. Even your tears have been stored up there because the one who's waiting for you loves you so much, he hasn't wasted a single tear. (laughs) It's not a place of peace. It's a place of love. It's not passive. It's active. You know, to see the, the face of God is really to see the element that we were made for. Uh, it's interesting the way that Paul explains the situation in, in, between now and when we're in heaven together. One of the things is he says that we are actually riddles of, to ourselves. We don't even understand our, our own selves. And he, he uses the idea of mirror, that we look into a mirror dimly or darkly. Now, one of the reasons that he uses this is because in the ancient times, there were no glass mirrors. A glass mirror gives you a true reflection of yourself. What they had was polished metal. If you have ever seen yourself in polished metal, you always get a distorted image of yourself. And so what Paul is saying here is that the very best that you know yourself now and you know all your capabilities, and you know all of your potentials, is nothing more than looking into a polished metal mirror. So every time you or I think we know ourselves so well, we know what we can do, what we can't do, and many of us say these kinds of things to God. God would never make me do this. God would never send me here. And all of these kind of statements that are such idiocy from us, And yet we think they sound like wisdom. What Paul says is you've got to recognize that what you see of yourself right now is only partial. It is not a clear view of yourself. Now, one of the things that that I was thinking about in terms of, of, of this idea of getting to heaven and, and, and of being in this element, um, I thought about what are the happiest times that you've had, particularly when you're a child? What were some of the happiest times? And when I asked this question, because someone had asked this question in one of the books I was reading about this, and they asked this question and said, when were your happiest times? And I immediately had a memory. Now, I've told many of you this before. My childhood was not a very happy one. My father was a rageaholic and and we were really religious, so we had, we had all kinds of, of addictive religious tendencies. We had a lot of gr- guilt and shame, and we had a lot of abuse and anger. And my father was very violent at times. And so I never knew with my dad whether well, something I would say would set him off or make him laugh. And every day when I came home, it was very, very difficult because you never knew what the rules were that day. They were always changing. And so part of why I'm kind of a very emotionally sensitive person is because it was the only way I knew to survive was to have an antenna for what his mood was. But immediately when I was asked this question, I immediately went to back to about five, six years old before we moved from Louisiana to Mississippi. And there was this park that my dad took us to, my mom and dad and my brother and, and I think at least two of my sisters. And we went to this park 
and he grilled out. He grilled steaks for him and mom, and we got hamburgers. I'm still a little bitter about that. <laughs> but I can still, even 50 years later, I can still see his face laughing. And I can see him playing with us. And I can see a happiness. I see my mom laughing. I see the kids playing, my brother not being so annoying that day, you know, and and because uh, I'm the oldest, and all these things going on, and I realized, you know, and what made me happiest about that one is I felt loved in that moment, and I felt loved because it was safe in that moment. All the rest of my life, all around that memory, it's not safe. You know, I didn't know what he was going to do or what he was going to say, and once we got, you know, got away from the picnic, it went right back to the old way. But that picnic, that barbecue, I was incredibly happy. And 50 years later, I could still feel the joy of it. It's as if time stands still because I can remember all the laughter, my father cracking jokes and my mom laughing and giggling and my uh, sisters and brother all playing together. And it was incredible. But it's almost like an oasis in the midst of a desert for me. But listen, What is Paul saying here about heaven? He's saying that if you know your happiest times on earth, it was when you felt loved. It wasn't when you were getting something. It wasn't because someone was buying something for you. It was because they loved you and you were safe and you were respected and you were honored and you felt like you mattered to that person. It's those moments when we are the happiest. Think about this for a minute. Uh, another instance, how many of you as teenagers or even when you're as parents and your teenagers come to you and they say, Dad, I, uh, you know, I'm going to go out. And you say to them, well, where are you going? I'm just going to hang out with my friends. Okay, and, it, and in those like moments of your teenage years when you've got that group of friends and you have the, this special group of people you know, that you can talk with and they talk with you and it almost feels like time stands still because you don't need, you don't need any externals. You don't need to do any, you don't have to go to a movie. You don't have to do anything else because if you're just with them, you're happy. And time flies because you're with the people you love, the people you feel like understand you. What is Paul saying here? He's saying for eternity, you'll be hanging out with the people you love. You'll be hanging out with those who love you back. And to be in heaven, Paul is saying, is to be fully known and to be absolutely loved. To compare the love that you know now would be like comparing an oily rag with a wedding dress. And the truth of the matter is what Paul says here is it's personal. It's not an it, not a thing, it's personal. Heaven is a place where you have a face, and your face matters. You know, I think about that just in terms of the way it feels here on earth, like many of you I've gotten to know over the years, and I just see your face, and it makes me happy. Because your face reflects something of your true self, of what I know about you, and what you've been willing to let me know about you. Some of you, it's a little harder because you don't let us see your face. You put a mask on. Maybe it's religious. 
Maybe you're hiding a bunch of secrets and shame in your life. And, and you wonder why you never feel love. Well, you never feel love because you never show your face. You will not know love. You will not experience love until you take the mask off or the shield off or whatever it is you got on. And some people's mask is, is like a SWAT shield. You know, it, you can see through it, but you can't get through it. See, in heaven, it'll be the opposite of the garden. In the garden, they were naked and ashamed, and they began to cover themselves. But in heaven, you'll be naked and unashamed. There won't be any more secrets. There won't be anything else. And you'll say, I was safe all that time, and still I hid. I really was respected and loved all that time, but I hid. It's so powerful when you think about this. In other words, Paul is saying, you'll know me, and I'll know you. And your face I will recognize. And for the rest of eternity, Jesus will be face to face with you. So this is kind of what heaven is like then. Everything stops but love. Verse 7 says, faith and hope are just means to an end. Everything that's going on leads to love. In a sense, what you begin to realize, if you start to put your faith, you say, okay, he bears all things in me. Will you say that with me? He bears all things with me. He believes in me. He trusts all things in me. He endures all things in me. His love never fails. See that? Everything that's going on is, is trying to funnel you to the place of accepting that love and then operating from a position of that love. Religion is an attempt to earn a place. It is an attempt to secure some power with God and to get leverage with God. So it has to use law and therefore has to use guilt, shame, and fear. If you are in a real relationship with love and that love comes from God and it is offered to you as a grace or a mercy, then there is no leverage. There is only receiving. There is no earning because you can't earn a gift. There is only receiving. You don't then have to pay it back because if it's given, it's not a debt. That's why sometimes when we sing that song, All to Jesus uh, I Owe, I don't like that necessarily because we don't, he, he's not giving it to you so that you owe. Because if you start saying, I owe, then you start working again and you start trying to earn again and you start trying to deserve again. If, however, this unusual feeling comes over you and you just start going, I am so utterly and completely known and I am completely and totally loved and you start acting as one who knows love, who's experienced love, and you start letting your face be seen. Then what comes out of you is the best you. I mean, I don't know if Joel Osteen writes it that way, but I can tell you. I just don't know. I didn't read the book. But I'm saying to you, if you want the best you, it's not the earned you, it's not the work for you, it's the naked you, you know, with no, no hidden shame, no hidden guilt, the, 
honest, raw, come as you are you, who then says, I'm the biggest mess on the planet, at least the biggest one you know, and say, and I am utterly, absolutely, and completely, unconditionally loved. And then you realize, I can go from here. And then what you do from there, what you perform, how you act, what you give, all of that becomes an expression of the true you. See, when, when, God, when God designed your personality, He made it unique. He made it beautiful. He made it to swim in the ocean. And what has happened is that other things have attached itself to His design. For example, he didn't design you to be prideful and arrogant. It attached itself to you. He didn't design you to be insecure and lacking in confidence and fearful and worried. He didn't design you to be angry and depressed. And he didn't. Those are things that have integrated themselves with your true self. When it says that he fully knows you, it doesn't simply mean that he has information about you. The Greek word there is a word for experience of a person, of relationship with you, of binding oneself, of having so experienced this person that you'll never let them go kind of a thing. And so what does he see? He sees you without that negative stuff. He sees and looks through the mask of your pride, and he looks through the mask of your anger, and he looks through the the, the deep, dark secrets that you put on like eyeglasses to hide yourself. And he says, I see you, and I know you, and I love you, and I know you exactly now. I know you in a way you will never know yourself, and I love you. This is what Paul is saying. It is a now thing. You are fully known now. It's not that you're going to be known when you get to heaven. You are known, accepted, loved. He is committed to you now. And you can probably hide some stuff from us, although it's not so easy around spirit-filled people. And you can keep your mask on, but that would be stupid. Because you're already known. And the only one you're actually fooling is the one that looks in the mirror and sees a glass dimly. Because you haven't fooled the one who loves you. You've fooled yourself. And guess what? If you fooled yourself, it probably originated from hell. Since the father of lies likes to fool us. And he has no grace. And he has no love for you. He'd love to use you He'd love to set you on the shelf so you're not useful to the kingdom. But he has no other plans but to kill you, to steal from you, and to destroy you. So I don't really like looking into the mirror and hearing his voice. I don't like him interpreting my life. Because he's lying. And he has no good end for me. But if I listen to the voice of the one who fully knows me, What is he doing? He's calling out the true me. The real me. Not the mixed up and tangled me, but the real me. And he has a vision of me 
that will probably only fully be realized in heaven. Well, when you think about this aspect that I'm talking about, what, what at least for me, theologically, what makes the foundation for it is the Trinity. Now, this is, this is a little bit of heavy thinking, so I'm going to ask you to stay with me, okay? But our God has revealed himself as having, being one, per, one God in three persons. Now, some people hate that idea, and some people try to fight against that idea, but there's a very real reason why this is important. If, if God was a single person, if he was a uni-person instead of a triunity, or a triune God, then he would not have known or experienced love until he created us. So for all eternity before us, he would have existed without love because he would have been alone and there would have been no expression of that love. But because he is a triunity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Bible makes clear that the Father has been loving the Son forever. And the Son has been loving the Father forever. And so this, this, this love relationship that the Father has with the Son and the Son has with the Father is the reason you were created. You were not created to do great things for God. You were not created to earn favor of God. You were created to experience the love that the Father has for the Son and the Son for the Father. They have invited us into that fellowship. That's pretty good stuff. <laughs> because some of you, you've been running around going, I got to find my purpose. I got to do something great. I got to do... Well, the great thing is to accept the invitation. How do I know this? Well, John 17, Jesus says, I have loved you and you have loved me and you have sent me here. And this is his big high priestly prayer at the end of his day, his days here on earth. He prays this prayer and he says, and I have, you have done so so that they could know the love I have for you and you for me and they could live in that love. So the whole of the purpose of God for your life was so that you would be invited in to the circle that the Son has with the Father and the Father has for the Son. And see, if you get this, you'll quit trying to be this little pauper, poverty-stricken, little nobody-loves-me-I'm-going-to-eat-some-dirt kind of person. And what will happen is you'll go, I've been invited into the eternal love affair. I've been invited into the perfect relationship. I've been invited to the table where the food never runs out and is always satisfying. I've been invited to the drink that satisfies and leaves me with no thirst, but once makes me want to drink again and again and again. <laughs> because in the end, it's like, who am I to be invited into this party? And so many of us will go, well, I don't deserve it. It doesn't matter. The only one who can invite you has invited you. 
And he sent his own Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, going forth into all the world, arresting the hearts of those who didn't even know there was a party to go to. And you were invited. You were called. You were chosen. You are the one he wants at the party, and he wants you there forever. That's what heaven is. Entering into perfect love, the love that you've always wanted, that you were made for, the ocean that you want to swim in. The, I mean, think about all the things that have ever given you pleasure, a beautiful waterfall, a song, a dance, whatever it was that just made you go, this is great to be alive. That's what you're invited into for all eternity. Well, there's one more thing. Just for that, there are two more things. <laughs> One of the ways to put this is that when Paul says, I shall know as I am fully known. The idea here is, is that you begin to really grasp and live in that I am so accepted. I am fully loved. Listen to me on this. You want some emotional health in your life, you're not going to get it from people. They're going to screw you up. Even with good intentions, they're going to screw you up. Because they need what you need. They hunger for what you hunger for. If your husband or your wife is your God, they're a terrible God. You know, if, you're, if, if, if the, the love that you think you're going to find, you're going you're to steal or you're going to take or you're going to receive from another person, it's not going to be there. I have a fantastic wife, but she cannot love me unconditionally. She can have wonderful affection for me, and sometimes I do the right things and she has affection for me. But I am a man, and I do tend to live with my foot in my mouth a lot. You see, if she's trying to draw her happiness from me, she's drawing from a tank that's empty. And even if I had something to give, if she draws it, I no longer have it. But see, if I get this, and I understand this, and I begin to realize there's a tank I can draw from that never runs dry, and then I bring that to my marriage, I, I love my wife. I am so happy with her. I love growing old together. It's fantastic. But it only became fantastic when she was not the source of my happiness. It only became fantastic when I no longer put on her the conditions of being God to me. And I brought to our marriage the joy and the happiness I have in my fellowship with the Father and the Son. You see, at some point, you begin to realize that there's this thing called knownness. (laughs) That when we grasp that we are known and we have this knownness, you know, I am loved, I am known, I am, he experiences me. He's not running from me, he's running to me. Just like the father in the story of the prodigal son who ran to his son. And I begin to know these things and I begin to experience these things. 
and they became, begin to be real, then something real about love happens. You have, you have to understand that what's happening in our world, because people don't know unconditional love, is they are telling you over and over, here are the five steps for some conditional love. Here are the five conditions for love, all of this stuff. And they're trying to make it a negotiation. Love is insanity, not negotiation. You can't really negotiate with the insane, you know? I mean, it's just, it doesn't happen that way. And so what's happening is people are missing out on love because they're trying to define their rights. You know, you go into marriage with a prenuptial. You go into this, and, you, you know, it's all, almost always people going into marriage with a back door to go out. Guess what happens? You go out the back door if you have one. Now, I'm not trying to pick on any of you. I'm trying to, we need to speak truth if we're truly going to understand and experience love. And uh, one of the things that you begin to realize is that love owns you. And the ones you love, in some sense, are owned by you. And until you trust someone enough that they can own you, then you can't fully experience all the love they have for you. Because in in some very real ways, and I've been with the Lord a long time, and He's done tremendous healing in my life, and He's turned the way I look at things upside down. But what I've come to know is even though I'm a son, and I know my identity as a son, I still like calling Him Master. Because he owns me. He owns me body. He owns me soul, spirit. He owns me. He owns my house. He owns my car. He owns my bank account. There is no part of me that is independent of him. And it's the only way to know his love fully. He owns me. And guess what? Because he owns me, I own him. Do you understand what I'm saying? You see, this flies in the face with culture. As we understand it, what we're getting is a very, very watered-down version of love where you're bargaining to get something. I'll give you this if you give me that. This is not the way it is at all. When you really love someone, they own you. You are theirs, and they are yours. And when that happens, there's no longer independence. There is either interdependence or a sense of dependence on one another. And guess what? If it's real love, it's healthy. Because it's the way you were made. And you know this. When you've been infatuated before, you want it to be owned. Only you found out they weren't worthy of it. You found out that all the hopes you placed in them, they weren't what they were supposed to be. You see, with God, you won't find that. With the love of God. Well, this, stay with me on this one because I really like this one. C.S. Lewis explains it this way. There is a sense in which when you and I, if we meet together one-on-one, that I will get to know something about you. Okay, The one-on-one is a way to get to know people. But the truth is, I won't really know you till I see you with other people. Like, uh, one of my best friends in the world is Ron Walborn, and he and I do one-on-one times together, and we meet together and we talk. And there's a way that Ron is when he's with me, and it's just the two of us. Okay? But there's a whole other way that he is when there's a crowd. <laughs> or when it's just Lisa and Wanda and, and Ron and I, there's a different way. And the truth is, if I only knew him the way he is with me one-on-one, that would only be a little bit of who he is. 
but because I've seen him in settings where he preaches, or I've seen him in settings where he's with people or, or in settings with our wives, I see who he is. You see, what, what that's showing us is that heaven will be this place where because you will be face-to-face with Jesus, you'll also be face-to-face with everybody else. And it will be this seamless sense in which you will see everything about everybody who's in the face of Jesus, and, it, and you'll know them. And instead of going one day and up, up to Jesus and say, you know, you didn't spend enough time with me yesterday. You were really, you know, you were spending all that time with Matt, and I don't think he deserves as much time as I should get, you know? It won't be like that for us. In heaven, it will be this incredible eternity of getting to know one another, know ourselves, and know him. See, we are finite. When we go to heaven, we won't become infinite. We will stay finite. So all eternity will be growth. All eternity, I'll get to see Matt in every splendid way that he will be. He will get to see me. You'll know me like you've never known me before. I'll know you. And in the midst of it, we'll be dancing with Jesus. Is that a, I mean, when I explain it, you start going, I think I'd like to be there. Because you start to see it's not this going into nothingness. It's not going into a cloud playing a harp. It's the ocean you were meant to swim in. Where all that just doesn't fit here will suddenly make sense to you and you'll say, this is what I was made for. Well, the last of these then. What difference does it make if if heaven is this world of love? One is then... uh, If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, then you've got to realize that reality is personal, never impersonal. Holy Spirit's not it. It's not an it. He he is a person. And personal is, is the heart of God. God is a person, not an it. And so everything in heaven is personal. So then... If you're living with these unreconciled relationships where you've got bitterness and unforgiveness, you know what that does? It's not just that it's sin. It's not just that it's bad. Listen to me. You lose your grip on heaven when you are bitter. You lose your grip on heaven and it's reality now for you while you're existing in this element. You lose your grip on what you were made for when you are unforgiving. That is why you should be swift to forgive because you want to keep the contact with heaven because that's the place you were made for. That's the place you're going to. The other thing is, if if heaven is, is this world of love, then we should be the most passionate people on this planet. You, stoicism has nothing to do with Christianity. Nothingness has nothing. Those are coping mechanisms for people who refuse to deal with their pain. You will never know the pleasure that is yours until you're willing to plumb the depths of the pain. Without grieving, there is no joy. Joy comes in the morning after a night of grieving. We should be the most passionate people. 
We should not be dead. We should not be numb. We should not be hopeless because we are moving in a world that is moving to a world of love. And that means that the thing that matters most is people. Not how much money you have. Not how big your house is or your cars are. These aren't evidences of the favor of God. Sometimes they're evidences of the mess of our lives. I mean, how many people have giant houses and no furniture because they're maxed out because they're trying to prove to people they have worth and value? They have believed a lie. And in this area, it's easy to believe a lie that if I'm prosperous financially, then there's something important about me. But the truth is, the scriptures are telling us that what matters is how do you love people? At the end of your life, the Lord isn't going to ask how many hours you worked at your work. He's going to ask how many people did you love? You guys got quiet after that one. Well, and if heaven is a world of love, we can face suffering. Again, I remind you, I like what Teresa Avila said. She said, you know, from heaven's perspective, when you're there, the worst suffering you have in this life will be nothing more than a night in a bad hotel. Because you'll see, it was just temporary. It was passing. If you and I get our knownness, that we are known, we are loved, we're moving towards heaven, we will recognize that beach whales do not always have it so nice. It's not so easy on the beach when you're a whale. And you and I are made for the ocean, and this isn't our ocean. I'm not excusing you for... I don't think you should check out. I don't think you should quit, but you have to understand this is, this is just the training ground. You're moving to the place you really are made for. Well, the, other th- the last thing then is this. There is a hell. Okay, if there's a heaven and it's the realm of love, then hell is the opposite. And, and some people like the idea, they say, well, heaven is this place where nice people go. Think about what I said earlier. If heaven is the place where the love of the Father is expressed towards the Son and the Son's love is expressed toward the Father and what they have done is invited us to enter into that relationship of love, then heaven is primarily a place for lovers of God. Anyone else there who does not love God, whether they were nice people or not, doesn't matter. They will be beached whales there. It will not be their element. For those of us who love God and the love of God is real to us, then heaven is heaven to us. Now, sometimes people will say, I'd rather go to hell because all my friends are there. Okay, now let me, let me tell you real quickly. If heaven is, is described by 1 Corinthians 13, it says, the love of God, which is, which is heaven's essence, is patient, is kind, bears all things, believes. If that's what heaven is, then hell is impatient, unkind, doesn't bear anything, doesn't believe anything, doesn't trust anything, doesn't hope anything. So what you have is really and truly there will be no friends in heaven. In hell, sorry. In hell. There will be no friends in hell because if heaven magnifies what is good and eliminates what is bad, then hell will magnify what is bad and eliminate what is good. 
Another way to look at it would be this. All love, even friendships, even between among people who have no love for Jesus. All love, friendships, family love, all originates from God anyway. So with the absence of God's presence, there will be no love. So even the love that people are experiencing now in a fallen way is still a mercy that God is giving to those of us that don't deserve it. Does this make sense to you today? So I, I just found this so like earth-shattering as I thought through this about heaven, about what it means to me now. You know, that I am known. That I don't have to hide my face anymore because Jesus hid his face. Because the Father hid his face from Jesus thinking about the fact that I've been invited to an ongoing love fest that happened way before I ever came on the scene from the two persons who don't need it from me, but who offer it to me. And I thought we should conclude our love series with a love feast. Because here is that love personified. Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you. So he knew you couldn't get into the love fest unless first he gave his body. But nothing deterred him. Nothing stopped him. Nothing slowed him down. He went to that cross. It said he set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. And as he had that last meal with his disciples, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And then he he took the cup also. And he said, this cup is the new covenant. Now, some theologians disagree, but I tend to hold to a kind of an old covenantal theology where before the fall ever happened, God being all-knowing, knew what would happen. And I sense, at least for me, I believe that what we see in Isaiah 6 when uh, God says to Isaiah, who will go for us and whom shall we send? I think that question was asked before the foundation of the world. And I think the Father asked that question and said, who will go for us and whom shall we send? And I think that the answer came so quick, even before the words were out of the Father's mouth and the Son said, I will go. And some have called this the covenant of redemption, where a redeemer volunteered. Jesus even says this later. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. And then he says at that dinner, he says, this is the cup of the new covenant. Now, the covenant he had was between father and son. But he says, this is the new covenant he has with us. This is son to us. And he says, I'm making a covenant with you. And he says, the proof of the covenant will be in my blood. That's the payment I'm going to pay for this covenant. My blood will pay. And then he says, it will be for the forgiveness of sin. Whatever you bring in here this morning, you know, whatever is stuck to you, whatever is tangled in your personality, whatever is tangled 
and mangled your faith. Whatever it 